So whenever I get the chance, I really enjoy reading missionary biographies um, and like old missionary biographies, like, <clears throat> excuse me, prior to the, to the modern age, um, at, at like frontier missions. And truthfully, I think missions work at any point in history, no matter what it is, when it happened, even if it's today. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. But if you were a missionary before planes, trains, and automobiles, I mean, it was, it was a different ballgame, right? The communication back home was almost non-existent. And can you imagine getting on a plane? Or actually, we're talking before planes, trains, and automobiles. Can you imagine getting on a boat and having no idea if you were ever coming home? And having, not only that, when you got to where you were going, having no idea what to expect. Like that, to me, as I, as I read through these and I'm picturing, you know, what these missionaries were doing, they had something that they believed was life-changing, and they believed everybody in the world needed to hear about it. And so they would travel anywhere, do anything, make sacrifices. They were saying goodbye to family members. They were saying goodbye to friends. They were saying goodbye to, I mean, really their lives as they knew it. Um, David Livingston was a missionary to Africa in the 1800s. Um, and he was actually considered to be one of the most influential explorers of his time. Not just missionaries, but explorers. Um, he ended up being the first um, European to go to cross Africa from east to west, which, by the way, just for reference, is probably double the width of the United States. So that's a, it's a pretty far trek. We're talking 1800s. And the reason he was an explorer is because everywhere he would go, he would go find these people groups that nobody even knew existed, and he would map it out, not only so he could get back, but so he could tell others how to get there. And so he would make maps, he would make trails, they would literally make trails. And I mean, he would write books as he traveled, he would preach. Um, he was also extremely influential in raising awareness on the African slave trade. So, I mean, the, the life that he lived, as you read his biography, it's, it's pretty intriguing. One of his treks, he started in South Africa because he would go home for a while, he would teach, he would raise support, and then he would go back to Africa. And so one of his treks, he actually started in South Africa, went north, and as he's heading north into Africa, he stumbles upon this waterfall, right? It's the largest waterfall in the world, which he named Victoria Falls after the Queen of England. It was pretty incredible. But so, you know, you're reading these biographies. That's kind of one of the reasons I like them because you're, you're getting a sense of adventure, but it's, it's adventure for Christ's sake. And I think I, I had, you know, it's an extra level of appreciation there. Um, but one of the things I think personally, besides the adventure aspect, which some of you are probably like, that's not adventure, that's craziness. But for, you know, as I read it, it sounds pretty intriguing. It's adventure. And so I think besides that, no matter who I'm reading, no matter what I'm reading about, I think one of the things that stands out the most about the lives of these missionaries is the pain, the loneliness, and the heartache. And, I mean, you can, you can put yourself in their shoes and, and understand loss of loved ones literally on the field, maybe back home, lack of fellowship, language barriers. A lot of times wherever you're going, you don't know the language, you're trying to learn the language, you have no fellowship with the people who are there, um, separation from family. I mean, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, but then there's this characteristic that no matter what biography I read, they all seem to have. And that characteristic is looking above your current circumstances and focusing on Christ. No matter what's happening here, they're looking above their circumstances. It's the only way you can live. That's the only way we can live, but 
you know, I think it's, it's magnified when you look at them because you're like, you see them losing children. You see, I mean, just all the things that are happening. That's the only way they can survive. And I think sometimes we think we can survive by not doing that, but they literally, that's the only way they can survive is to look above their circumstances and focus on Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, who was another, he was a preacher in England. And Charles Spurgeon, he suffered, he was also in the 1800s, and he suffered long, lifelong bouts of depression. All right, lifelong bouts of depression. He came to Christ when he was 15 years old. And in his biography, he said it was 1850 when he came to Christ, 15 years old. And he said he was heading to this place of worship. And so he's walking down the road and he's just trying to, everybody kind of just went to church. It's kind of what they did in the 1800s. So he said he was just going down this road and he said he got caught in a snowstorm. Snow's coming down. And he's like, I got to find a place to get, a place to shelter. He wasn't even looking for a, a church or anything. He just needed a place to get out of the weather. And so he turns down this street and he finds a small Methodist chapel. And said he goes in and they were having service. There was probably 15 people in attendance. And he said, as he walked in, the preacher was reading Isaiah 45, 22. It was King James Version, because that's what everybody read back then. King James Version. I have it right here. And this is what the preacher was saying as, as Charles Spurgeon says he walked in. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. And he said after like 10 minutes, he just kind of listened to this, and the preacher was kind of expounding on look. Like, where are you looking? Are you looking at your circumstances or are you looking at God? And so he was kind of expounding on that. And he said, there's about 15 people in the audience. And all of a sudden the preacher looks at him and he said, young man, you look miserable. That's what he said. How'd you guys like it if I did that? <laughs> I might try that later on in the services. So try not to look miserable. All right. Um, but he said, you know, he looked straight at him and said, young man, you look miserable. And then he said, he raised, he raised his hands. The pastor raised his hands again and he shouted, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And Spurgeon would write that in that moment, he gave his heart to the Lord. Like that just, that impacted him. And he was like, I have been looking 50 different ways. Even up until the moment when that pastor said those words, I had been looking in 50 different directions for peace, for comfort. I was looking at money. I was looking at friends. I was looking at, you know, different things to do. And he said, but in that moment, the Holy Spirit opened my heart. And that guy said, look. And he said, for the first time in my life, I looked. And I saw what all those people around me who called themselves Christians had actually been looking to, and it wasn't a, this figure, it wasn't this thing, it was a relationship with Jesus. And so he would later write that in that moment, it totally changed his life. And, it, and as he fought with depression, as he fought with tragedy, as he just struggled with all these things, I mean, if you look at how many times Spurgeon preached throughout his lifetime, it was, it was a ridiculous number. I'm not even gonna speculate, but it was a ridiculous number of times he preached. He was preaching sometimes 15, 20 times a week but he said when he would run into those bouts of depression, he would recall that old country preacher sitting there looking at him and saying, look to Jesus. And he said throughout the rest of his life, it, that impacted him so much so that when they carried his casket through the streets of London, when he passed away, when he died, they were carrying his casket and laid open on his casket was a Bible and it was open to Isaiah 45 verse 22. Because every single time he preached, he looked at the people and he said, look to 
Jesus. And that goes for people who maybe don't have any relationship with Jesus. And it goes for people who do, but have taken their eyes off of him and are looking somewhere else. So he would, he would always challenge people with that. And so as we kind of jump into this text today, I think, I think it's an incredible legacy left by some of these missionaries, but I want to ask you the same question. Do you, do I, do we look to Jesus? Could you say that about yourself? I look to Jesus, not, not only for salvation, but when tragedy strikes, when friends walk away, when loved ones betray us, what do you do? When tragedy strikes, what do you do? Today, as we go in, we're going to go into 1 Samuel, or excuse me, 2 Samuel, chapter 15 and 16. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel, chapter 15, King David is in the middle of a crisis, probably the lowest point in King David's, in King David's life. And as we go through this, as you know, if you've come here regularly, we preach through books of the Bible. So if this is your first time, we're kind of dumping you into the middle of a story. So we're, I'm going to try to, there's going to be a lot of words and names that I'll butcher. I won't even know how to pronounce. They're big names. You can laugh at me if you want, but I'll, I'll try to get through. But we're jumping you into the middle of a story. King David is king. He's the second king of Israel. King Saul was the first king of Israel. All right. And David has had plenty of highs, plenty of lows. I mean, there's, there's, he's been a conqueror. He's fought battles. He's, you know, they used to sing songs in the streets. David has killed his 10,000s. I mean, this, this is a man who was a warrior. This is a man who killed Goliath. So, I mean, David is a, is a powerful figure. But here's the thing. At this point in time, his son, his son Absalom has revolted. Years in the making. And he is marching an army towards Jerusalem. All right? David was alerted to the rebellion. And David was in Jerusalem. David gathered kind of a large number of people, anybody who wanted to go and was like, let's go. Instead of fighting, they left the city. Okay. They go out the city gates, they go across the brook Kidron, and then they begin ascending the Mount of Olives, which sat up on the hill opposite the city. And as he heads up the mountain, we see, I think, kind of a different King David. We see a somber King David. He's not angry. He's not frustrated. I feel like he, almost like he's sad. That's when we're reading this, you're almost going to get the, the impression that he's sad. And there's a couple things as we, as we go into this text I want you to realize, I want you to see. All right, one, God puts friends and people around him to encourage him, help him move along. There's also going to be enemies that come along, shout curses at him. And I mean, there's just, it's an interesting way. As he's heading up this Mount of Olives, he will have encounter after encounter after encounter after encounter with a variety of people. Some have evil intentions, some have good intentions, but he has friends around him who are propelling him to continue on. And then the second thing, and the most important thing, is he never takes his eyes off the Lord. He looks to the Lord the whole time. All right, it doesn't mean he's not discouraged. doesn't mean he's not sad at times, but you can tell by his demeanor, you can tell by the 10 Psalms he wrote during this period that he knows who is in control. He knows where he is headed. And I feel like, you know, this, this journey that he's on, if you, I've read this passage quite a bit just in preparation. So it takes place probably 2 Samuel chapter 14 to 2 Samuel chapter 19, 18, 19, before the rebellion is over. And the journey that David is on is covered in 39 verses. And the rebellion ends in three verses. So you have 39 verses of the journey, and you have three, I mean, you, you, this campaign is squashed eventually when Absalom does himself in, in three verses. 
the author very clearly wants you to see the journey. He wants you to see how David is reacting over this course of time. And it, it might seem a little odd, but that's how life is. There's plenty of mountaintops. There's plenty of valleys. But in the end, I think we'd all agree it's all about the journey. The mountaintop doesn't last long. The valley doesn't last long. It's all about the journey. It's all about keeping your eyes where they need to be and your focus along the way. So let's jump in. 2 Samuel 15, verse 16. A couple of these verses we covered last week, but just so those of you who weren't here, I kind of wanted to bring them into context so you weren't lost. So deep into the pool. Verse 16. So the king went out and all his household after him. So David is leaving Jerusalem and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. So this migration that we just said of people is leaving Jerusalem. They stop at the last house and they almost get the sense that David just wants to assess the situation. All right, who's with me? Who, who's here? Who's, who has made this journey? So verse 18, and all his servants passed by him. So he's in the same spot. He's kind of seen who's with him. And all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. So all of those weird names that I just said, they were really foreign mercenaries. If you were a king, especially in ancient times, it was not uncommon to hire foreign mercenaries to be your bodyguards. Because the locals, sometimes they would change sides, change allegiances. And, you know, so you would, you would get this allegiance of really foreign mercenaries who a lot of times you would pay to be your bodyguards. Now with David, these guys over time have realized, okay, we know who David is. We know he follows the Lord. Like we're going to do this anyway because we love him. We care about him. But, you know, that's kind of why, who these people are. So that all these guys pass by. And then the last one, the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, verse 19, why do you, so David looks at one of these guys and says, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you and may the Lord, now look at David, think of a situation and he's already showing us that he knows who is in control. May the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Atai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for life or for death, there also will your servant be. And David said to Atai, go then and pass on. So Atai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness and Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. So they all keep going. And now the next two people that we meet are two priests, Zadok and Abiathar. Those are the next two people we meet. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant. This is not from the movie. They bring the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it in front of David. And you don't really know why they bring it. We don't know if they're trying to make maybe safekeeping. We don't know if they think the ark is a good luck charm. If you remember back to 1 Samuel, I think chapter four, remember the Israelites were going into battle and they decided to bring the ark of the covenant with them. They brought the ark of the covenant into battle. They thought that they would win because they brought the ark, 
And the ark is just a symbol, right? I mean, you're, you're, the Lord is the one who is with you, but they bring the ark thinking it's going to do them some good. The Philistines actually capture the ark and then all kinds of weird things happen. There's you know, a lot of mice involved and statues' heads fall off and weird things happen inside Philistine territory. And all of a sudden the Philistines like get this thing out of here. So it's possible that the reason these two priests bring the ark to David is they too think, okay, this is the most important thing. We need to take this so we can win the battle. We don't know that for sure, but David looks at them and says, hey, here's the deal. The Lord is the one who provides. The Lord is the one who is my shepherd. The Lord is the one who leads. He is the one that's going to determine if we win this battle, if we don't win this battle. And he says, take the ark back. And that's what they do. Verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And, you know, as, as you read this, that last statement, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. If he says, he's talking about the Lord. If the Lord says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. It's, to the, if you're just reading this kind of casually, no studying, just kind of reading through, it almost sounds like a woe is me mentality. Oh, let him do whatever he wants to do. It's fine. I don't care. You know, whatever happens, happens. But when you read the Psalms, it's important to read these things together because you get a real sense of what's going on in David's heart. David is saying this because he knows who is in control. So you, you can't read it in a woe is me voice. You read it in a I know that God is in control. And if he says, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. If God wants to rescue me, God's going to rescue me. Like David understands who is at the controls of his life. All right, that's, that's the way that you have to read it. Verse 27, the king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons. Here's where I start butchering names. Ahimaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So here's what happens. He sends the priest back. He says, we're going to go ahead and go. We're sending the priest back. Me and the people are going to go. We're actually going to go up and we're going to cross near the Jordan River. We're going to go all the way up to the fords of the wilderness. And if you think back to when the Israelites left Egypt, they actually crossed the Jordan River. Right? They were in the wilderness for so many years, 40 years, wandering around in the wilderness. Then they came to the Jordan River. They crossed over the Jordan River and they took Jericho. That was kind of their parlay into the promised land. So David's almost doing like a reverse track. He's going back up all the way to the fords of the wilderness. The fords are like is that area around the Jordan River. So he says, Zadok, Abiathar, you go back, bring word to me. Whatever you find out Absalom is doing, bring word to me back over at the fords of the wilderness and we're going to wait for you there. All right, verse 29. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot with his head covered and all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. So this is a very symbolic way of showing you're in exile. You're barefoot, you're weeping, you've got a covering on your head. I mean, this is, can you imagine the scene? Thousands of people walking up the Mount of Olives, David probably at the front, 
They're walking up, they're crying, they're bare. I mean, it was a sight to behold. And they're, they're showing the people who are looking like we are in exile. Something is happening to us. We're making this trek. They're all crying and you really can't blame them. I mean, Israel had been really protected from the Lord through all of David's reign. And now all of a sudden, for the first time, a lot of these people are being displaced. The king's son, the prince, has risen up, tried to revolt, tried to do a rebellion, tried to kick them out, and they're leaving their homes. It's hard to kind of put you in their shoes, but imagine leaving Tampa because there's something going on. There's a war going on. You're leaving Tampa, and you're looking back at everything you've ever known. You're looking back at everything you've ever done. You're looking back at your, your home, your family, your job, everything about you. And you're, you're really, I mean, there's so many emotions going on as you're leaving. And they're walking up this hill to the Mount of Olives. And when they, you know, David, who's a part of this, you know, David's pain and crying goes a lot deeper. Okay, because his tears aren't just for Absalom, his son, or the rebellion, or the fact that, you know, his companions are on the run. He knows, and this is very important to what we're going to see. David knows that this situation is happening as a result of his sin with Bathsheba. He, so for him, it's a deep, there is a deep, deep pain. Because years ago, I'm going to explain this to you. Years ago, Nathan confronted David over Bathsheba. The fact that, oh, got Bathsheba pregnant, you know, then all of a sudden killed her husband. And all this nonsense went on. Nathan comes to him, if you remember, and he tells this little story about a lamb and a traveler. Remember, and he said, oh, you know, then at the end he goes, Nathan looks at David and goes, you are that man. And then David's just like, oh man, I can't believe this happened. And David's like, Lord, I'm sorry. I, like, I'm so deep into the sin. I had an affair with Bathsheba. I had her husband killed. Like, this is a man after God's own heart. And all of these things, have, he's done all of these things and he, and he tried to hide them. And all of a sudden, Nathan, the prophet, calls him out and says, look, this is no way, not only for somebody who claims to be a follower of God, but this is no way for a king of Israel to behave. And so this is what he says. This is what David's punishment. When you're on a pedestal and you're a leader, you're held to a very high standard. And God's going to look at him. And in chapter 12, he says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. It's happening. Absalom. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David remembers that, guaranteed. It is imprinted in his mind. So as he's going up to the top of this Mount of Olives, he's probably all of these thoughts are running through and he would have made it to the very top of the Mount of Olives. It would have, had, it would have been on the east side of the city of Jerusalem and he would have had that view turning around, probably looking back at the city of Jerusalem. And, and I have no doubt, thinking of all the victories, all the celebrations, I mean, put yourself in his shoes, family gatherings. And now he's got tears running down his face and he's wondering what could have been if I did not choose to walk this path. That's, that's, a, that's a tough place to be. What could have been if I hadn't have done that? And that, that's, the, that's the pain that he is feeling, all right? And you know, when I, when I read through the New Testament, almost a thousand years later, I think it's very, it's very interesting that Jesus, a thousand years later, when the Messiah would come, when Jesus would come and walk on this earth, the creator of the universe would walk on this earth, 
among his creation. He would heal them. He would care for them. He sent out demons. I mean, if you look at what Jesus did, I mean, it was incredible. The last verse in the book of John is always my favorite. It says, you know, if everything that Jesus did while he was here was written down, not even the entire world could contain the books that would be written. So after all that Jesus done at the end of his ministry, he's on the top of the Mount of Olives. He's coming from Bethany. He's on the top of the Mount of Olives and he's making his way down into the city. He put him on a donkey. If you remember his triumphant entry, he's coming into the city on a donkey. And here's what they said. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, so exactly where David is, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Like tell them that they should not be praising you as if you're God. And he looks at them and Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out and the baby will cry out. Verse, verse 41, and as he approached Jerusalem, so this is Jesus still coming down, riding on the donkey. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, what did he do? He wept over it and said, if you, even you, now listen to this, listen to this phrase and imagine Jesus is saying this to you personally. If you, even you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? Let, let that sink in. All the things we're looking at, all the things we're chasing, all the things we're trying to find, all the peace, the satisfaction, the, you know, the peace in our heart, the smile on our faces, all the things we're doing. Jesus looks at us just like he looked at them. If you, and he's crying when he says this, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. I think, I think it's, a, it's a legitimate question even for us, you know, what will bring you peace? And the Sunday school answer, the answer we all grew up with if we went to church was, oh, it's Jesus. But the question I think for all of us is when you get in those situations and life throws a curveball, when tragedy strikes, when somebody betrays you, when a loved one walks out, what do you do? That, that's what I call the rubber and the road. When the rubber hits the road, do you look to Jesus? Do you know who brings you peace? And it's a question I have to wrestle with all the time because I believe it, but sometimes I don't quite act like it. And David, here's the thing I love about David. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of his heartache, even though he knows he brought this on himself, on his past actions, David knows who brings him peace. He knows who's in control. He writes 10 different Psalms while he's in exile. 10 different Psalms during this time. And you can read those and they're full and rich with just, you can see his heart. Psalm 61, one to four. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And we see even as he's crying out, he's you know, literally crying out, his prayers are beginning to be answered. Verse 31, it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And while David was coming to the summit where God was worshiped, behold, Hushai, the archite, 
came to meet him with his coat torn. So the next person David encounters is a person named Hushai. All right, he came to meet him with his coat torn, dirt on his head. He's kind of the same, the same thing that all these other exiles would have been doing. And David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Essentially, look, Ahithophel has changed sides. And everybody looked at Ahithophel's counsel as, I mean, that's who they all went to. He was the go-to guy for counsel. And so if Ahithophel has changed sides, David's like, Lord, you have to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. And then Hushai comes. He's like, Hushai, go back to Jerusalem. I don't know what Ahithophel is telling Absalom, but you have to go, you have to go back and counter that. And verse 35, are not Zadok and Abiathar the priest with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are there with them. Here's where the rewards come in. Ahimez, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them, you shall send me everything you hear. For Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So Hushai comes. David says, you gotta go, you gotta go deal with this. Hushai says, I'm gone. He goes back to the city and he's walking into the city just as Absalom and his crew is coming from Hebron up into Jerusalem. So they're kind of getting there at the exact same time. Chapter 16, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, so he's continuing his trek out into the wilderness, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. Thanks, Jay. Can I just look to you every time I need to say something? Um, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple donkeys, saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread. So God's continuing to provide for David, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these things? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness, who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephizabeth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. So God continues to provide the next interaction with a guy named Ziba. He brings him all this different stuff. And then um, David continues his journey over to the Jordan River. Now, I put up here where he's going because it's, it's a little important. This is Israel. This is a map, a little older map, but it has the 12 tribes of Israel. And I've just kind of zoomed in on the one area we're talking about. So David is in Jerusalem and he's kind of taking a track that goes up and over to where that number two is. You see that number two right in the middle of the map? That's essentially where he's going to cross over the Jordan River. But to do that, he's going in Jerusalem and he's going through the tribe of Benjamin. And if you remember, King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And King Saul was the king right before David. King Saul was killed, not by David, but he was killed. And there's some unhappy family members of the tribe of Benjamin who David's about to encounter. So the next person he run into is a guy named Shimei. Verse five, when King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. He sounds like a fun guy. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the money men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you 
all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now, I feel like it always happens this way. You're tired, you're exhausted, you're weary, and all of a sudden, Shimei, some clown named Shimei, comes into your life and starts screaming and throwing stones. Am, am I the only one? I mean, just when you feel like you're down and just when you feel like you're, you, know, you got punched a few times, all of a sudden, Shimei comes in. And the crazy thing is, Shimei doesn't even really know what he's talking about. I mean, there, there's, there's a little bit of truth to what he's saying. David is a man of blood, but the blood in reference is not Saul's blood, because he didn't have anything to do with that. It's Uriah's blood. And so he, he is technically, there, there's a little bit of truth, but, but here's the deal. Let me ask you a question. If you are in David's shoes in that moment, what do you do? How do you respond? It, you're, you're tired, you're exhausted, and, and you're the king of Israel. You're, you're feeling the weight of everything. This is a, this is a very proud culture. You, you, it's all about honor and respect. He is the king. Now, granted, he's in a situation where he's being exiled out of Israel, out of Jerusalem. But all of a sudden, this guy comes, Shimei, off to the side. He's yelling. He's screaming. He's cursing. He's throwing stones. Put yourself in David's shoes. What do you do? What is your normal? This is, this is personal. What is your normal response when someone insults you? Ben's laughing. Um, what is your normal response when someone, I mean, someone who trash talks, someone who calls you out when it's unnecessary? Think about it. How about someone who has a different opinion than you? What if they belong to a different political party than you? A lot of you just shook your head on that one. <laughs> How do you respond when someone attacks you verbally based on what you believe, where you're just, and you feel like you're just minding your own business, and all of a sudden they come out of left field. How about different social views? Even in some of the same political parties, there's a lot of social issues going on right now. A lot of refugees at the border. A lot of things that people think differently about that. What if somebody has a different view of how we should care for refugees at the Texas border than you do? What do you do? I mean, this is, this is the, I, let me say it this way. I feel like we live in a Shimei culture, a, a verbally hostile culture. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody needs to be heard. And if you don't believe me, get an f- account on Facebook and spend five minutes on Facebook. Okay? Five, maybe three, maybe three minutes on Facebook. Facebook is full of Shimei. Social media is full of, your workplace at times is full of Shimei's. Your neighborhood is full of Shimei's. And a lot of times it's because maybe what you believe, what you stand for, the moral principles that you have. People don't agree with them. They want to attack you for them. What do you do? It's a, it's a, very, it's, it's a very interesting position we find ourselves in. And as, as society, I think, progresses further and further, I think for a lot of us, it gets harder and harder just to maybe do what David's about to do. 
What we would rather do is what his men tell him to do, right? So here's how his men respond. You're going to see how David responds, and you're going to see, or first you're going to see how his men want him to respond, then you're going to see how David responds. Then Abishai, the son of Zuriai, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Okay, that's one way to deal with someone who verbally attacks you. Might be a slight overreaction, but that is one way to respond. Okay, now, most of us, me included, are probably like David's men. Somebody insults me, somebody says something, especially when I'm minding my own business, I want to take off their head verbally. Verbally, okay? I want to, am I right? Am I the only one? I mean, that, that's, that's the, the human, natural, fleshly response. But David knows who's in control. David is walking with the Lord. David is seeking the Lord. And how does David respond? But the king said, what have I to do with you, your sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai, to all his servants, behold, my own son. So he's looking at his men. He's like, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord, has, the Lord has told him to do so. Like maybe God's telling him to do this. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, cursed as he went, throwing stones at him and flung dust. Can you, can you picture that scene? I don't know how many more miles they had to go, but the entire rest of their journey to the fords of the wilderness, they're walking down the road and Shimei is over here throwing stones, cursing, and kicking up dust on them. Now, if you thought you were really disciplined when he said his first curse at you, how you doing two hours in? All right, this the whole way. I don't know how many miles they had to go. It's, I mean, it's a journey. If you looked at that map, you don't have to pull it back up, but it was a journey to get from where they were to where they were going. Shimei accompanied them, thank, thank the Lord, the whole way, right? The whole way he was with them. So let me ask you this. How do you think Jesus would have responded? If people were hurling insults verbally at Jesus, what do you think he would have done? You think he would have shown love, kindness, compassion? David looks and says, look, he can say all he wants. I don't know why he's doing it. Perhaps the Lord put him up to it. I mean, David does understand that part of this judgment that's come upon David is his own doing. So, I mean, I, I don't know that I believe that the Lord put him up to this per se, but the Lord's allowing it to happen. And David's like, look, I'm just going to do nothing. I am going to keep on walking because here's the deal. I think David knew this is what the Lord would want to happen. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to bite my tongue. I'm going to keep on moving. And he also knew if God wanted to do something about it, God could do something about it. Shimei, I could just be like, done. Stop breathing. All right? Like most of you probably wished had happened. But that's I mean, that could happen. And David's like, why should I do it? There's a guy named Gene Edwards who has a book called The Tale of Three Kings. Um, and it's a fascinating book. And it's looking at the, the, it's a really quick read. I would recommend it to everybody in this room. It's a really quick read. It's about four hours. Um, 
And so, you know, you get through it really quick. But he says, here's what he says. It's the, it's the story, kind of this, this hypothetical interaction between different characters in this story. And it's, first it's Saul, then it's Absalom, then it's David. Well, then they're all kind of intertwining in between. And so there's this one point in there where it's this moment. And this is what they're kind of, we don't know that this is actually said, but this is what Gene Edwards says in his book. And I thought it was fascinating. He says, in David's heart, in this moment, essentially what he's saying is, the throne is not mine. Not to have, not to take, not to protect, and not to keep. The throne is the Lord's. He is in control. If he wants to take it from me, he can have it. If he wants to have me keep it, I'll keep it. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know he is in control. I am going to look to him the entire way. And I think we could all learn something from that. I don't know where my life is going to lead. I don't know if this is going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to get married. I don't know if kids. I don't know if this is going to, I don't know if I'm going to keep my same job. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know any of this. But I do know who is in control. And I know where I'm going to put in place my faith. And here's the thing. If David wanted to do something about it, what are his options? I mean, I've thought through them because I wanted to do something to Shimei as I was studying this. So, but what are his actual options here? All right, he can't really run away. I mean, I guess he could. So he can either kill the guy or beat him up. Probably a little overreaction, right? He could yell and scream back at him. Might kind of pointless. I think we've all learned that. It's kind of pointless to do that. Or he could ignore him and move on. That's what he does. I got better things to do. I got better things to focus my attention on than all these frivolous conversations that just try to suck me in and throw rocks at me. I am focused on the Lord and I represent him. And let me, let me encourage you as we move on to this last little section that as followers of Christ, it's okay like David to ignore the shimmy eyes in your life. I know it takes everything in some of you to ignore people like that who are attacking you. You just, just want, you know, you just, you want something to happen, but it is okay to ignore them. There will be times you need to speak. There'll be times you need to speak up and there'll be times you need to keep your mouth shut. That's just, that's life. James says in James 1.19, he says, know this, my beloved brothers. And it's such, ama- I mean, it's scripture, but it's amazing advice. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? So you're better? So you're a better person? No. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger, anger of man really does not much of anything does not produce the righteousness. Charles Spurgeon says, if you can revenge yourself, don't. If you could do it as easily as opening your hand, keep it shut. If one bitter word, bitter word, could end the argument, ask for grace to spare the bitter word. So let me just wrap it up like this, this little section. Whether you tend to be the one that is on the giving end of words, or you tend to be one that is always on the receiving end of words, just know that words have impact. They have kingdom impact and they can, they can last a really, really long time. All right, verse 14. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. So they get the fords of the wilderness and it says they're weary, which is not surprising considered Shimei was following them and cursing and throwing things. And it says there he refreshed himself. So as the, as the chapter ends, we're gonna wrap up. It shifts back from David over at the fords of the wilderness back to Absalom. Absalom is marching into the city. And here's how the chapter wraps up. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. And Ahithophel with him, 
And when Hushai, the archite, this is David's friend who came, David's friend came to Absalom, Hushai and said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Notice he doesn't say which king. So a little doublespeak there. But, and Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Notice he doesn't even say with my father. He says, is this your loyalty to your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be. A little more double talk. And with him, I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. So Hushai is now in the fold with Absalom, kind of spying for King David. And here's how it wraps up. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. Remember, Ahithophel was the guy who was kind of looked at as, he gave great counsel. We're about to see he doesn't give great counsel, but this is kind of how people viewed him. Give your counsel. What shall we do? Now notice, Absalom doesn't go to the Lord and say, what should I do? He goes to Ahithophel. He says, what should I do? Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. And that's how we're going to wrap up today. And to be clear... I think it's important to address this. To be clear, this wasn't as much an act of lust on Absalom's part as it was a statement of power. It was a, he wanted to publicly humiliate his father. He wanted to make it clear to the eyes of all who were watching that he had stolen his father's kingdom. But here's the thing, and the author doesn't hide it. It does not change the fact that when I read that, you were shocked. When I read that, you were like, whoa, he did what? Like they told, they encouraged him to do what? And the author means, I think, for you to be shocked. The author meant for you to be shocked with what David did to Bathsheba. The author meant for you to be shocked at what happened to Tamar. And the author means for you to be shocked, kind of understand where the kingdom has gone about what Absalom has just done to David's concubines. These are, these are people, and, and, it's, and it's just repeated over and over and over. These are people in their society who don't have a voice. People in their society that are overlooked, people in their society that aren't cared for. Women didn't have, you know, in those days, especially the days where, you know, the kingdom was going, they weren't given much of a say and they, would, they got taken advantage of. Um, Jen Wilkin has a Bible study on this passage here. And she says this about that. She says, society is only as civilized as it treats its most vulnerable members. Society is only as civilized as it treats its most vulnerable members. And for David, if you kind of just step back and look at this, for David, he doesn't know this because he's out at the wilderness. He has no idea what just happened. But this kind of wraps up the final chapter of his punishment. Because if you go back to 1 Samuel 12, or 2 Samuel 12, thus says the Lord, this is his punishment from Nathan for what he did. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, Absalom, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So here we are, all the way back where it all began, on the rooftop of David's house. That's where all of this began. And, and it, you almost have to look at where the counsel's coming from. Because if you look at who is actually giving him this counsel to do that, Ahithophel, that's actually Bathsheba's grandfather. There's no doubt there's 
here's what I want to do to David. Here's, here's where it all began, and here's what I want to do. All right? And here's the thing. Don't think, this is very important for you to understand. Don't think for a second that God orchestrated what just happened. Don't think for a second that God orchestrated those women to be taken advantage of. Because he didn't. Right? It's, it's almost as if, I mean, God's not even mentioned in the passage. Right? You read about David, he's like seeking the Lord. You read the Psalms, he's seeking the Lord. You go to Absalom, God's not even, no one's even seeking the Lord with Absalom. But the Lord, here's, here's what happens. When, when God kind of pulls out of a situation without God intervening in the life of Absalom, Absalom is left to do what Absalom wants to do. I, I think of it kind of like Romans 1. Romans 1, 24 says, Therefore God gave them over in the simple desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Just, just because this happened, just because God knew it was going to happen, doesn't mean he wanted it to happen. Doesn't mean he orchestrated it to happen. But he looks at David and said, look, David, this is what's going to happen. And his punishment is now complete. Right? They're going to, a corner is going to be turned. So here, as, as we wrap up, where, where do we go from here? Like, I, I like to look at a passage, study a passage, and then leave the passage and say, what do, we, what, do we, what do we take from this? And I think if you look at the life of David and you look at the life of Absalom, it, it paints a really great picture of our life. Because our natural tendency, everybody in this room, our natural human tendency is to be just like Absalom. That's our fleshly desires. I want to be in control. I want to rebel. I want to have the kingdom. I want to do whatever I want to do. Nobody's going to stop me. I just, that is our natural, fleshly, sinful tendency, seeking my own kingdom. Our own desires, ignoring the God who created us. And it, it's rebellion in, in Absalom's case against his earthly father. And I think for us, it's rebellion against our heavenly father. Like that's the, that's the natural way of things. And I want, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know there is a creator of the universe that says, I want a relationship with you. Just like Isaiah 45, look unto me. You have heard that I was some old religion. You have heard that I was just some dictator. You have heard that I was this impersonal being that you, wrong. Look unto me. There are hundreds of people in this room that could tell you about their relationship with the Lord and how it's completely changed their lives. And the God of the universe looks at us and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you life. Jesus tells the parable of this. It's called the prodigal son, but it's this young man. I kind of look at it in a sense like Absalom or like you and me. He tells this story of this young man who wanted to take his inheritance early. He's like, oh, dad, give me my inheritance. I want to do whatever I want to do. I don't want to wait, you know, until you've passed away. Just give it to me now. He left home and he lived in rebellion for a long time. Sinned against his father, publicly shamed his father. But here's the deal. When the son finally returned home, the father had been waiting for him every single day. And when he saw him down the road really, really far away, he's like, is that him? Is that my son that I've been looking for for so long? He's like, it's him. And he ran to his son. This rebellious, sinful, 
son who wanted nothing to do with them. And here they embrace, and the prodigal son begins to confess and say, Lord, I'm, or Dad, I'm sorry I did this. And before he could even get it out of his mouth, his father says, you're forgiven. You're here. You're sorry. You've repented. And that's all that matters. Like, I just want you to know that I paid the price on the cross for your sins. And if you've never done that, if you've never said, Lord, I trust, if you've never looked unto him, as Spurgeon said, I would encourage you to do that today. I would encourage you to put your faith in it. And then for those of you already followers of Christ, how are you doing? Are you looking to the Lord? Are you trusting him? Don't let Satan pull you down. Don't let Shimei derail you from where you know the Lord is asking you and leading you to go. Keep your eyes focused on your heavenly father and look to Jesus every step of the way. I want to finish with a story. John Patton, another old missionary biography. Um, John Patton was this missionary in the 1800s. And he was telling this story in his biography. He was telling the story of when he was a kid, he's like, man, he met somebody and had this relationship with this, this person. This person's like, you know, talking about missions, talking about overseas missions and the people in China. And he ended up actually going down, I think, towards New Zealand, Australia area. But he's like, man, I just, I want to do that. So when he was like 18 years old, he's like, dad, that's what I want to do. I want to go be a missionary. And his dad's like, all right, let's find you a school and you can go. And that, that was a big decision for a parent because that parent knew he'd probably never see their kid again, potentially. Go to school, get on a boat, go across the world, 1800s. You never know what's going to happen. But here's, here's the story. He says, he says it was a 40-mile walk from their home to the train station. And his dad, John Patton said, his dad said he was going to make the walk part of the way with him. He's like, let me, let me walk you, son. Let me, just, let me talk to you about life for a little bit. And here's what he said in his biography. He said, my, father, my dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsel and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. He wrote this 40 years later. Tears are on my cheeks as freely now as they were then, whenever memory steals me away to that scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying his hat in his hand while his long flowing yellow hair was beside his back. He said, then it was yellow, now it's white as snow years later. He said, his lips kept moving in silent prayers as we walked, and he was praying for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence, and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in farewell, I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a long time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home and began to return. His head still uncovered and his heart, I know for sure, still rising in prayers for me. 
I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. And I, all I want to do, I want to encourage you today. Some of you maybe never had a father that was like that. Never had a father who cared about you and prayed for you and loved you. And, but you have a heavenly father who loves you more than you will ever, ever know. And he wants a relationship with you. And the tears that he cried for the people of Jerusalem are the same as the tears he cries for you and me. The Bible says there is more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner comes to repentance. And if you've never done that, I would encourage you to do that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you have done, Lord, in our lives. And we just, we thank you for the cross. Lord, it's passages like this that make us think, Lord, and just help us to see who you are, Lord. Help us to know that you're in control. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the promises in your word. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins so that we could spend eternity with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.